Welcome to Beyond the Surface. On our podcast, we highlight underrepresented voices in architecture. We'll humanize architects by uncovering who they are beyond the surface. Hi, I'm your host, Alex Sanchez, representing the Illinois Tech Student Chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Today's episode is called Shaping a Landscape Legacy with our guest, Ernie Wong. Ernie is the founding principal and president of Site Design Group, an award-winning landscape architecture and urban design firm. The firm has established a reputation for creative design solutions, developing thoughtful, community-oriented urban spaces. Ernie has served on the board of numerous public service organizations, including the Chinese American Service League, Near South Planning Board, and he is the chair of the Chicago Landmarks Commission. In 2013, Ernie was elevated to the American Society of Landscape Architects Council of Fellows for his exceptional leadership, extensive community service, and outreach work. Thank you for taking your time to be here with us today. How are you feeling? Thank you, Alex. I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited to be able to have this conversation with you. I know our producer Caleb has told me how excited he is too. So thank you again for taking your time to be here. We can go ahead and get started. So I'm going to throw an easy question out there for you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and what shaped the way you look at life? Yeah. Actually, it's funny for me to be here on the campus of IIT because, quite frankly, this is the campus that did shape my life. From my background, both my parents were immigrants from China that immigrated to this country, and they actually met in North Carolina, but my dad was studying here at IIT for architecture. and. His practice really kind of shaped who I am and how I view the world. So I'm one of four children. We grew up in the Kenwood neighborhood. So born in Bronzeville, grew up in Kenwood and in my father's houses. So my father, he was one of the original Mies protégés who had come here. Uh, he actually had a fellowship to study with Frank Lloyd Wright. Wow. And he wasn't able to get his visa out of China that year. So the following year, he gets his visa. He's on his way up to Taliesin, and he runs into Mies, and he never left. So he got pretty much ghosted Frank, you know, <laughs> which is pretty cold. But, you know, hey, probably way better off. But him and Mies, they, they worked together for a number of years. Uh, I always refer to this picture of my father and Mies at the Farnsworth house when it was under construction, which always excites me. That photograph is now probably public, but at the time when I discovered it, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. But really, my father's practice in the city of Chicago was one of the things that really shaped me. And can I ask, just for more context, what type of work did your father do? He was doing a lot of housing work, not only for the Chicago Housing Authority, but also private development. Probably the most famous thing that he did were the atrium homes down in Kenwood off of 50, 50th in Dorchester. And those won all kinds of awards, AIA awards, having this exterior building with no windows. And everything was based on the courtyards that he had developed with Mies. So he became very famous for his courtyard homes. It seems like your father really influenced for you to go into landscape architecture. He, he did not. He oh. influenced. My father really... I think that he secretly wanted me to be an architect. Mm -hmm. In fact, he didn't want to push that on me, but he certainly, I think, had it in his mind that I was heading down the road of architecture. 
and was not very happy when I when I chose landscape architecture. He was like, <laughs> "How dare you do that? It's so, you know, it's so beneath you," and et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was something that I really felt strongly about. Growing up in the late '70s and understanding the you know climate change had already started by that time, and so understanding the impact of the environment on our built environment really was important to me. And looking at public spaces and how that influences how society looks at the world, I think was really super important. I ended up going out into the national parks with a group called the Student Conservation Association, mm-hmm. and building bridges and. Uh, doing trail work for them with a bunch of kids from all over the country. And that really influenced my connection with nature. And so that's the path I really wanted to follow. And my father was fine with that. I mean, I ended up going to Michigan State University to study fisheries and wildlife. And I got there and I ended up having to take statistics. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. What am, you know, <laughs> I knew nothing. You know, I was like completely failing. And I was like, why do I take the statistics? And somebody told me, oh, you might, you might have to be counting fish for the rest of your life. And I was like, <laughs> nah, that's not going to happen. And so Michigan State does not have an architecture program. But they do have a landscape architecture program. And that was my discovery of landscape architecture in terms of a combination of something I knew how to do growing up in my father's office, as well as having a connection to nature. So it was really a a wonderful kind of merging of those two ideas. So you started with um, biology before ending up in architecture, right? That is correct. You know, when you go into the fisheries and wildlife program, in any of these big programs, There is a lot of agriculture, there's a lot of ecology, there's a lot of environmental science, there's a lot of um, a variety of different things that go on, geography, geology. And so those are the things that I was pretty interested in initially, but I didn't realize that all of this could actually influence landscape architecture as it does now. Because now, when you look at the field of landscape architecture, It is so in-depth in terms of everything from soil science to um, the... We're dealing with all these natural disasters right now. And I think that landscape architects right now are so important to how we start to view the world. Because when we start to deal with the wildfires, we're starting to deal with flooding. We're starting to deal with all these natural disasters, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, etc., that keep coming at this unprecedented rate. Landscape architects... We know the land. We understand the land. We understand edges. And so there's a big project in New York right now, a resiliency project that is protecting the coastline that Scape, Kate Orff, famous landscape architect, is doing. And it's really making a huge difference. So I think that we're going to start to see more of that. Yeah, I know, like, especially in Chicago, you're really known for shaping people's lives with landscape design. And it seems like coming from the values that you've talked about and what shaped you to go into landscape design, it seems like you still really hold those values dear to your heart, which is really, really good to see. Going from that, can you talk about why did you decide to start your own firm? Yeah. You know, those values are extremely important. They've they've carried with me all of my life. The thing that I have not touched on in terms of landscape architecture is the social aspect of it. And I think that was, um, when I look back and I start to think about 
what is it that interested me about landscape architecture? And it was really about the urban space and how these public spaces affect people and how people interact in these spaces. And so it was really a sociology experiment. There is a book by William White, W-H-Y-T-E, who wrote this uh, book, The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces, which really became, I wouldn't say my Bible, but it really got me very interested in how people interact with public space. And so that's really carried me through my entire practice. So in terms of starting my own practice, it was really partially, my father had retired from his practice. He didn't know what to do with all his drafting tables, his flat files, et cetera. So, you know, I kind of inherited all the stuff. And um, I do have a business partner, Robert Sitt, who I started the firm with. And Robert, his father also uh, worked with Mises. Uh, you know, did a lot of Mises work. That's so interesting. Uh, so Robert and I, both Chinese-Americans, grew into this practice, and we really established this. He was doing architecture work and doing a bunch of stuff for, at that time, Illinois Bell. So I was helping him doing his architecture. He was helping me do the landscape architecture. We had just ended up saying, you know, this is crazy. Let's just get together. Let's do this, and went from there. But it kind of evolved into something completely different <laughs> so yeah so after you guys started working together and started your own firm how did you see landscape design impacting the community you know landscape architecture affects us all whenever you walk down the street whenever you go shopping whenever you go to the park these are the things these elements that you deal with on a daily basis and that's really important I think that we need to be in a place that feels safe, that feels comfortable, that you can apply to people of all different backgrounds and abilities, quite frankly. We do a lot of transportation work. It's not just the highways, it's not just the roadways, but we also do the streetscape projects, such as Argyle, reimagining what that commercial corridor was going to be like And we took away all the curbs. We made it very pedestrian-friendly and worked a lot with CDOT, Chicago Department of Transportation, in order to make this happen. It was the first shared street in the state of Illinois. And it became extremely popular, and it solved a lot of different problems. Not only did it solve slowing vehicular traffic down, but it also, at the same time, was able to achieve ADA access into these shops, which they were struggling with. So being able to do that and provide these environments certainly was super important to us. And every community is different, particularly in Chicago. Chicago is known for, you could say it's segregation, segregated communities, it's neighborhoods that are split up by the highway or split up by their wards and et cetera. And public spaces are the things that bring people together. We strongly believe in that. And they're for the community. We don't do this in isolation and say, here's what we think you should have. We talk to community members. We go out there. We have that discussion. And I think that's really super important. You know, I will say that this is a podcast for NOMA, right? Mm -hmm. Students. And the fact that early on, what was interesting for us in establishing the firm was that I refused to get certified as a minority business. 
because I, I was like, we want to be known for the merit of our work. We want to be, but we couldn't get our foot in the door. This was really controlled. The entire architecture, engineering community was controlled, frankly, by old white men. And there was no way to get in there until there was a mandate set aside by the city of Chicago to make sure that 25% of all contracts had to go to minority enterprises and 5% had to go to women business Mm -hmm. enterprises. And so that was the only way we were able to get ourselves in the door. In 1995, when the Democratic Convention, they were preparing for the 96th Democratic Convention, that was how we were able to get our foot in the door with the Department of Transportation and the firms that were doing work for the engineering firms that were doing work for them. They looked at us only for our value as a minority firm so they could meet their criteria, not for the merit of our work. And we still struggle to this day of being excluded from contracts because they continue to go to the old boys' network of people that they've known. And regardless of the number of awards we've won, it, it, uh, that's the world we live in. And so it's going to continue to be a struggle. This whole issue of the Supreme Court and its ruling on the affirmative action is a problem. And I think this is going to trickle down and we will see where this all ends up. You know, it, it's, it's waking people up to figure out the impact that that's going to make. Yeah, I definitely think that, like, things are changing for the better. But it's still sad to see that even you were criticized more for um, being a minority rather than the work you do. And you're only given certain opportunities because of the fact that you are a minority rather than because you do have the work and the qualifications to receive those opportunities. Correct. Even with those struggles, you were still able to push your foot in the door and to build spaces that still met your goals and your values and still impacts people. I remember that I've been to one of your parks in Chinatown. Pingtown Memorial Park. Yes. Um, I'm glad you've gone there. Most people don't know how to get there. (laughs) (laughs) i've been there multiple times i I didn't know you had designed it and it's such a beautiful park during the summer i was a ta for a program in architecture here at iit and the first night i brought them to that park to see the view of the city and to just like walk around chinatown but when i finally found out that you were the one who designed that park it made me realize how much landscape does bring people together and how important it is. You don't think about, oh, that tree wasn't there before the sidewalk was. You just, you just kind of... A lot of people take it for granted. Exactly. A lot of people take it for granted. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of is a problem with our profession, is that nobody recognizes it because everybody expects it. Oh, it was just there. In architecture, you can point to the building, to the structure, and say, we designed that, or I designed that. With landscape architecture, you're just in this place, and the expectation is, oh, this just got here magically, <laughs> you know? So in that sense, I'm happy about that because I don't want to sit here and say, oh, we're the great landscape architects and we design the world, you know? <laughs> That's a bunch of crap. But, you know, there is this kind of sense of we do magic, and people use these spaces very differently. And we found that out at Palmasano Park in Bridgeport. I don't know whether you've gone there. I have gone there. But this is a place that you go in 27 acres. By the way, 
That's the exact same size as Millennium Park. Oh, wow. Exact same size as Millennium Park. Think about this. So 27 acres, they got, I don't know, what was it, $795 million to do Millennium Park. We got, what, 17? (laughs) It was ridiculous. And it turned out to be the only park in our entire portfolio that we actually designed without a tree being implemented. All the trees were later donated by Target into that park. But that's one of the parks, though, that I think is really extremely... um, People discover their own ways there. And it's the sense of discovery. You have no idea that the fishing pond is down there. You have no idea. Once you get up onto the hill, you don't know what's behind the next corner. And it's kind of exciting to see that and kids discovering their way through the park and finding their own paths as well. I really love the hills there. It reminds me of home. I'm not from here. So I always complain about how, like, there's no mountains or anything. So when I'm there, it reminds me of home. I used to work around there. So during my lunch breaks, I would go (laughs) to the park to, like, lay down because I was so exhausted. Yeah. So, yeah, I've also been to that park many times before. Yeah. No, it's a, that is one of the things that we definitely try to do here in Chicago, which is so flat. Topography is so important and, and really adds a lot of value. So looking at the project, we just saw what else excites you about building public spaces? I find it interesting to um, just observing to see, is there a shift on how people use public spaces? And the pandemic was really one of those moments in all of our lives, frankly, that people actually, we were talking earlier about how people take these public spaces for granted, that they're just there, and so you just go out and you you use it. When the pandemic started, and we all had to go outside in order to breathe the air, there was a rediscovery of public space and open space that everybody realized it was important to them to live. And that trickled down to developers who realized that in order to sell their properties, they had to create these amenity things on their buildings. So the amenity decks that we have done on 167 Green, where the basketball court is in the sky, that Gensler did. You see the, the big meadow that is on top of the Chicago Post Office, old Chicago Post Office, which is amazing. We didn't do that. The designer came over to our firm, so we do have the guy that... Uh, that designed it. But it's a, um, those are the spaces that people are realizing are important to them. And so this is going to continue to evolve and how people start to use it. I'm seeing more and more e-bikes. So if you think about this, I think it was of the public space, like owned by the city of Chicago, within the city boundaries, over like close to 70% of it is roadway. That's crazy, right? Yeah. So that's dedicated to vehiculars, traffic. And once we start to change that narrative and start to say, we need to walk more, we need to bike more, we need to have these walkable communities, that's going to impact how we look at public space as well. I understand that because I ride a scooter. Yeah. (laughs) But I kind of like it. Like, people have to be like, why not a car? I'm like, well, it's more money and gas. But other than that, it's really nice to just be able to, like, experience the roads and spaces without having to be 
in a vehicle. I feel like I see things differently from a vehicle. And I could go into different areas like parks and exactly right through there. There's things I can't describe to someone who doesn't like bike or do such type of scooter walk places. I can't describe the type of things that I've been able to experience just being able to ride through like different places. Right, exactly. And, and that's true of all communities. As you discover these different communities, if you are in a car, you aren't necessarily going to stop at the tamale vendor in Little Village, mm-hmm. right? But if you're on your scooter and your bike, you just stop, you get off your bike, buy your tamales, and off you go. <laughs> so I think that that's one of the things. And you get to meet people. That's the other thing. You yeah. interact with people. You can't do that from the cars, which has been a big problem, frankly, with policing. And I am not going to be the first one to say this and not the last one to say this, but the problem that they've had with policing in the city and the reason that community policing, and I do that with my little air quotes, Mm -hmm. is so ineffective is because the only time you'll see a cop get out of his car is when that yellow tape comes out. They are not out there talking to community members, interacting with their communities, getting to know them as people and getting the community to know them as police, as people as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. If you can't interact with people, you're not going to make that connection. And you don't make that connection, you don't have the trust. If you don't have the trust, you're not going to build anything. So it just goes from there. And that goes back to one thing that I like that you said is that when you design a space, you talk to the people, you go to the community meetings, and you communicate to because you can't just put a design in the space. You have to be able to talk to those whose lives you're going to impact to be able to design that space. Absolutely. As well as the fact of if you aren't talking to community members about the design prior to the design being done, there's not going to be any ownership. Why would they go to that space? It's not theirs. They had no input. And so it becomes a creation of theirs as well we're just the drafting people you know drafting the ideas and making these things work in a lot of ways that that's what happens i like that so it's like the people are able to design their own space yeah people are able to design their own space exactly i know there's other projects that you've done like the chinatown public library with ryan lee and slm when it comes to community projects how do you usually get those projects i would probably say that Chinatown is very special to me in a lot of different ways. My father's last project that he did before he retired was the Haynes Elementary School. And I had come back from studying landscape architecture at Michigan State to work for my father. And he threw me in the fire in this thing with the design, project management. (laughs) I was a field guy, (laughs) the whole bit. And so basically the Haynes School was my project, you know, for me to get built. And, you know, I told you, I grew up in the south side of Chicago. I did not grow up in Chinatown. So this is a community that was very alien to me in a lot of ways. And I don't speak Chinese, which is very, very difficult for me. That's one of the biggest regrets that I have in my life is that I don't speak Cantonese nor Mandarin. I understand a lot and understand enough to be able to order food, etc., But it was very intimidating for me to be in the Chinatown community until this project came up. And then so now I'm immersed in this community. And the more I got to know the community, the more welcome I felt. And it was the support of the community when Pinktown Park came about. 
And that was actually supposed to be given to a white landscape architecture firm up in Evanston. And it was the advocates in Chinatown that went to the park district and said, no, you need to give it to Ernie Wong's firm, Site Design Group. And they advocated for that. They pushed for it. They were really behind supporting us. And so that kind of benevolence was so important to me, and I have since given back in terms of my role as a board member in the Chinese American Service League. I still serve on the Chinatown Chamber of Commerce. I'm involved with a lot of the other activities that go on in Chinatown, including the redistricting of Chinatown into the 11th Ward and establishing Nicole Lee as the first Chinese American woman and second Asian American to serve in the city council. That, to me, is super important because that means that we have a voice for the first time. And this is a growing community. If we don't have our voice, our fate will be determined by somebody else. And so that's why that is so important. And so I've been an advocate of that. There have been a lot of projects that have gone on in Chinatown that the leadership will either ask for my advice on or our firm is involved with. That's the building of trust. But that also happens in other neighborhoods. I'm doing the same thing in Chatham. I'm doing stuff in North Lawndale. We're doing work all over the city. Pullman was huge. Doing the Pullman Historic Monument down there just impacted that community incredibly. And to see the impact that that has in terms of the economic development and how the jobs that are now down there and just how that entire community is blossoming, nobody ever would have seen that before. But this is what we do. I love what you just said. It's all about building trust and design and impacting and knowing the people that you are designing for. And I love that you said that after the project that your father made you do, it felt like Chinatown was your community. And it feels like almost every single place that you have and that you are going to design, you have also made those part of your home. Thank you. And, and it's not, it's funny because it's not intentional. I don't do that with the intent of, oh, I want to go into this community and build the trust. That's not what it is. There's this authenticity, I would say, of actually really meeting people and understanding where they're from and what their issues are. And having compassion and empathy and being able to help people out, I think, is a huge part of... uh, It increases your ability, I think, as a designer, whatever you're designing, really truly understanding another human being. And that humanity, I think, is really super important. So you've spoken a lot about understanding people and their values. So I would like to ask a question about your position in the Chicago Landmark Commission. How do you think about an architect's role in public policy? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) we have another couple hours. (laughs) (laughs) I am really adamant about pushing that agenda forward. That is one of my dreams, actually, to get more architects, landscape architects, planners, et cetera, into public policy, whether it is setting that public policy or going into politics themselves or being in the background. I think it is so important. There's a couple things. One of them is that as designers, whether you're in architecture, whether you're in planning, you know, you become a problem solver. That's huge. You're able to kind of dissect things 
and then put things back together. And I think that ability to organize your thoughts, I think, is really important for society and it's important for policy. Because if you're able to solve the problem, then you can kind of figure out the plan, get that going, and then also to be able to maintain that and sustain it is another thing. So that's through legislation. And so the more that we're able to impact the laws and being able to make decisions, then we can stop complaining about all the stuff that defines the work that we do because we complain about it a lot. I mean, every time you come up against something and some politician says, oh, well, you know, I don't believe in this, and, but they, don't, they can't state why. And if you can break that down and understand why this is not a good thing for you to carve a hole in whatever building or whatever somebody thinks is a really good idea because they heard it from their friend at a cocktail party, um, <laughs> I think it's an important thing for more of us to get involved. And I think you start to serve the communities that you are designing for in a number of ways. Yeah. I feel like as someone studying architecture, I feel like we don't see the political aspect of architecture and landscape architecture. Other than like urban design, that's a little bit more political. But when we look at landscape architecture and architecture, we don't really see the political aspect and realize how much it affects an entire city. And I feel like what you were saying is very, very important. We do need to get more involved in the political aspect because we are literally building a city. Yes. And if you don't have that voice at the table, you'll never have the ability to do that. Let me give you the for example. The for example is the previous administration to uh, Biden's administration was trying to mandate that all federal buildings meet a criteria of classical architecture. And he was mandating that to become a law, which completely defeats the whole purpose of architecture in experimenting <laughs> and discovering and finding new ways to work. Are we going backwards in time? Oh, everything has to be a, a French villa, that terracotta pieces that are no longer being made. Have to, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous to think about that. But that's because we don't have a voice at the table. I don't know how many architects there are sitting in Congress. There are probably zero. And who's going to defend that? I never thought of it like that. Can you tell me about working with Maurice Cox on Invest Southwest? Absolutely. Maurice has a storied history. Not only is he an incredible designer and has gone through his career at the... Um, National Endowment for the Arts. He was a former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, for a while. So he understood very clearly how to kind of meld together the qualities of design and policy. And I think his involvement being brought in as the Commissioner of Planning and Development for the city of Chicago and poaching him from the city of Detroit was incredibly strategic for Mayor Lightfoot for a couple of different reasons. One of them is that her, um, her Invest Southwest initiative had somewhat of a roadmap, but didn't know how to get there. And Maurice was able to figure that out uh, using his planning ability. But he also escalated the value of design 
he's loved and hated for that. He was loved for it because us as designers, to be honest with you, is we hate it when our designs are dumbed down by those who are paying the bills. And they're dumbed down because, oh, we don't want to pay for this or we don't want to pay, or they think that they're losing money by having a higher quality of design. And I think Morty's kind of turned that around and said, no, you're not going to get past, you're not going to get your permits until you upgrade your design and increase the value of your design. And it's turned out to be beneficial, I think. I think developers are now looking at that with a different eye. They hated him because they felt that he slowed down the process. And if you're an investor in real estate, time is money. And I get that. But if you continue to ignore design and say, oh, let me just build the fastest thing I can get up, we're going to have a bunch of crap sitting in our city, which is known for our our architecture. So kudos to him for, for bringing that. But it is that his ability to negotiate that, understanding the politics of city government along with the values of design. So kind of like understanding the role you and Maurice have had in public policy. Can you talk a bit more about your role in the Landmark Commission? Yeah, Alex, that's a great question. The Landmarks Commission, it's funny because, you know, I've told you earlier about my upbringing in modern architecture, mid-century modern, and uh, there are a few buildings of that um, within that era that are being landmarked, but most of them being Mises buildings. And I think that was one of the reasons why they brought me along was because of my knowledge of that mid-century. But it was interesting because I would always poo-poo earlier design, architectural design, stuff I've been in. You know, it, it was Halberd. All of these folks, the original skyscrapers, and it was such an education for me to start to understand the value of those buildings in our society. And it was eye-opening for me. So I got appointed to the Landmarks Commission by Mayor Daley in 2007 to replace this woman named Michelle Obama. And that was um, kind of daunting, you know. The first time I met Michelle, she goes up and, you know, I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Ernie Wong, you know, I wanted to meet you and let you know that I took your place in the Landmarks Commission. She says, oh, how's that going? How's everything, you know? And I said, wow, it's pretty wild. I said, two weeks before the Landmarks Commission meetings, you get this huge stack of paper of all the agenda items and all those cases that are coming up, and you've got to read it. You've got to understand exactly what's going on because you're making policy, basically, as you go into these meetings. I said, I feel like I'm in law school studying for the bar. She says, <laughs> oh, Ernie, she says, I understand. It's really tough. So then she looks at me and she says, you want to trade places? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm going to just stop complaining right now. <laughs> That's the quality of Michelle Obama, you know. She's just just a wonderful person and really down to earth. But I now chair the commission, and it's been interesting for me to see the evolution of the commission. We have gone for a period, there was a period of time that there were no architects on the Landmarks Commission. There are, like, restaurant owners and... So it's exactly what you were saying earlier. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It was crazy. And so even reviewing these projects that had window replacements and terracotta replacements and that was left up to me you know so here i am as a landscape architect talking about mortar joints you know uh it's been a great experience for me 
to serve on that commission for a lot of reasons. I think that Chicago certainly is, um, there's so many buildings here that I think deserve recognition for their value to the city. And there are districts, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't leave room for new modern buildings. It does. And a perfect case in point will be Michigan Avenue itself is a historic landmark district. And you see the Spurtis Museum by Crook and Sexton that just completely changed some of the face of Michigan Avenue. And you see Helmut Jan's 1000M building that just got topped off. That certainly will change. And so I think there's room for a combination of modern architecture and contemporary architecture with historic architecture. And I think that's the lesson that we learn on the commission. That's where we want to move forward. I feel like you have had an impact in Chicago in general. You're in so many leadership positions. You do a lot of things in the communities. And it's very inspiring to see, like, just from this conversation, I understand more of the importance of architects and designers, landscape designers in public policy, as well as just being inside of the community where you are building or designing. So I have learned a lot from this conversation. So before we end this episode, I do have one more question. What are your future goals? My future goals? There was a time, actually, there, there have been a number of people who have asked me whether I am going to run for office. That is not in the cards. <laughs> so I'll just be very blunt about that. I am not running for any kind of uh, political office. I do, you know, there are some goals. Our firm, Site Design Group, we've had a lot of success in the city of Chicago. We continue to really try to make an impact in all the communities in the city of Chicago. But we also, there's an effort also to become a little bit more nationally recognized. And we're getting there. We're starting to compete with some of the better-known landscape architecture firms, both on the East Coast as well as the West Coast and winning some of those as well. So we're pretty excited about that. The team itself has grown significantly. We started the pandemic with 26 people. We're up to 52 now, which is a lot of mouths to feed. So it's keeping everybody pretty busy. Our leadership at the firm, I think, is growing, and I'm really looking forward to that and being able to see them kind of evolve and take the firm to a different place. Personally, I would like to see myself as a, a person that can continue to help a lot of different communities in a lot of different ways without having to be either a politician or a designer. <laughs> so wherever that leads me, I'm not sure. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, I wish you the best. Thank you. In anything you do, um, Thank you. we will always be here supporting you. Thank you. Actually, there is one thing, and that is I hope that I'm able to inspire and encourage more young people to go into the profession, and particularly people of color. I mean, I am really, really adamant about that. Well, I hope this conversation helps other people who are probably listening right now. I do appreciate, again, for you taking your time to have this conversation. I learned a lot, and I feel like the people who are listening right now will also learn, too. So, Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. I want to thank everyone who is listening. We release our episodes monthly. You can find us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthesurface underscore nomasiat. 
I want to thank our producer, Caleb Clark, the NOMAS IIT team, and WIIT for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Surface featuring Ernie Wong. Until next time, goodbye.